this national security issue I know is above and beyond the thoughts of most Americans, even a lot of people in the Patriot community. We haven't connected the dots yet. Yeah. It's just as important as all of the activism against the IRS, as all of the activism against the Federal Reserve. It's just as important. And it, just like the Fed and the rest of these institutions of monetary science, it has become an untamable, malign, self-cannibalizing dynamic in our society. It's just as important and it deserves just as much as our, of, of our attention. This is Tim Benall of BenallofAmerica.com with another edition of Benall of America Audio. It is April 22nd, 2006. This week we have for you an amazing guest, Andre Eglishan. Andre Eglishan was on the short list of guests I wanted on Benall of America Audio when I started the show back in September. Uh, I had just read his book, Thieves in the Temple, and I was just dying to have him on the show. We finally connected last week. Uh, in the meantime, Andre has released a second book entitled Where the Right Went Wrong on National Security and the Left Too, and I had the opportunity to read that in the last month or so, so we got a chance to talk about both books in this interview. Um, and I'm just tremendously excited about bringing Andre Eglishan to Banal of America Audio. I'm a huge fan of his work. We're discussing the national security state, uh, national security apparatus, national security council, whatever you want to call it. Uh, it is this cloak of national security that is used as the rationalization for a lot of shady maneuverings going on over the last 60-plus years here in America and all over the world. Uh, we're going to be discussing that. We also dip into uh, some of the themes and elements of Thieves in the Temple as well. Uh, if you haven't heard Andre Eglishan before, you're in for a real treat. Let me give you a little bit of background on him. Andre Eglishan is an alumnus of Florida A&M University in both music and political science. He is a successful entrepreneur and the talk radio host of The Andre Eglishan Show, syndicated nationally and heard on the Information Radio Network and live on the Internet at www.inforadionet.com. He's the author of Thieves in the Temple and the only known African-American to publish a book on the Federal Reserve System. Andre has published numerous papers on subjects ranging from science to religion and is also rapidly becoming a red-hot commodity on the lecture circuit. He's also the author of the new book, Where the Right Went Wrong on National Security and the Left Too. You can find out more information on Andre Eglishan at www.talktoandre.com, T-A-L-K-T-O-A-N-D-R-E.com. Check it out. That's his website. Without any further ado, let's rock and roll 
with this week's edition of Been All of America Audio. Andre Eglishan, Where the Right Went Wrong on National Security and the Left Too. This episode was recorded on April 14th, 2006. Andre Eglishan on Been All of America Audio. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Been All of America Audio. My guest this week is Andre Eglishan. Many of you may know him for his fantastic book, Thieves in the Temple, America Under the Federal Reserve System. He's also got a new book out, and that's what we're going to be talking about this week, and that is Where the Right Went Wrong on National Security and the Left Too. Uh, his website is TalkToAndre.com, and you can also hear him Monday to Friday, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Eastern Time, live on the Internet on the Information Radio Network, and the website for that is www.inforadionet.com. Welcome to the show, Andre. Thank you for having me. Um, well, before we dive into uh, where the right went wrong, uh, why don't you give me a little background, uh, how you came into this whole field and everything like that. Well, um, yeah, I've studied uh, the Federal Reserve System for quite some time, about 10 years. I've uh, studied our national security policies uh, in a historical context for about the same amount of time. And uh, I am, I consider myself a historian. And uh, in understanding the historical progression of privately owned central banks and the corporations that grown up around them, I just felt uh, that I had to throw my two cents into the pie. I know that there are a number of books that have been written about the Federal Reserve, very good books. And my book, Things in the Temple, tries to pick up where many of these books left off. And uh, the main idea that I want people to understand is beyond the simple anatomy of the Federal Reserve System and its physiology early on, the Federal Reserve System has morphed into an institution which is run by a group of frantic men trying to maintain the only thing that's holding the world's economy together right now, which is confidence in the system. Uh, so I decided to put my thoughts down on paper for that and uh, publish it in a book just to let people know that today the Federal Reserve is presiding over an economic environment which is uh, can only be described as beastly in nature, uh, totally untamable, uh, and uh, we're caught in the grips of a maligned, self-cannibalizing global economic system right now. And as I said, uh, the Fed's Board of Governors are frantically trying to maintain enough confidence in the system so as to maintain stability in not only our markets, but in the world markets that are affected by Fed policy. My second book, Where the Right Went Wrong on National Security, is an attempt to address what I feel uh, is has been uh, a drive towards an imperial presidency in America and the utilization by various administrations, primarily on the right, but some on the left as well, of the National Security Act and its protocols to establish that imperial presidency in the United States of America. What started out in 1947 with the passage of the National Security Act, the National Security Council, as a, a, a civilian advisory committee to presidents 
has today morphed into a command post for all kinds of illegal covert black operations which have been backdoored out of various White Houses, both on the right and on the left, since the establishment of the national security state in 1947. So I felt that uh, it was important to address uh, national security and what has been the byproducts of U.S. national security policy as well as U.S. presidential policies on strategic petroleum reserves as many of these corporations operating in the defense sector have been prime beneficiaries of the Federal Reserve's monetary policy and what has been, uh, in my opinion, the adverse effect on pretty much every living thing on this planet. So uh, I think these two books really will give the reader a thorough background in uh, the compromises that the American people have made, first of all, in outsourcing and privatizing our monetary policy, and secondly, in allowing the implementation of national security strategies of the true security of the country, but to facilitate uh, the agenda of multinational corporations, primarily in the defense sector, in the name of national security. Yeah. Now, do you think the fact that uh, the National Security Council, National Security Agency, it was secret for so long, they couldn't, you couldn't even uh, tell anybody about it, that it even existed, that sort of goes hand in hand with the anonymity of the bankers that you stress in uh, Thieves of the Temple, right? That is correct. Anonymity is their most cherished asset, uh, both of the military strategists as well as of the uh, 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 bankers. Uh, the international bankers cherish their anonymity. Uh, it is the loss of the anonymity which can send the markets in a tizzy. Uh, brokerage, um, uh, indiv individuals working in the brokerage industry and the accounting industry and pretty much every professional on Wall Street has paid very close attention to the physical posture of various Fed chairmen, particularly Alan Greenspan. I mean, if he carried his briefcase in a certain hand, it would send signals. Uh, so, you know, they try to maintain anonymity uh, to avoid sending the wrong signals to the market and thereby undermine the glue that's holding this whole thing together, which is the confidence of the world that the dollar is still sound because the United States is still uh, the dominant uh, economic and political and military force in the world. However, it's a house of cards and uh, because the dollar's hegemony is ensured simply by nothing but that, that confidence. I mean, uh, the, the dollar is in serious jeopardy right now, the loss of its hegemony. As a matter of fact, Tony Blair said that in 2012, the dollar will no longer be the world's reserve currency. So they, the central bankers want to maintain the control of the rate, pace, and sequence of the transference of the dollar's hegemony, its status as a reserve currency, into some other currency uh, by that particular time. Yeah. Um, and now, the, uh, this, the NSC and the NSA, I kind of use them interchangeably, I hope that's all right. Mm -hmm. um, they were created uh, in 1947, like you said. This was right about in the wake of uh, as these guys in Project Paperclip were being brought to America. Um, do you think the importation of these uh, war criminals and, and pretty much German uh, mind vendors and what have you, do you think the importation of these guys brought their ethics and their uh, that whole mindset over to America? 
Um, I think that the mindset pretty much existed here in America because it was Wall Street uh, which financed the rise of Adolf Hitler. And uh, to just give the listeners a brief overview of um, the, the what, when, where's, and why's of uh, Operation Paperclip, uh, you cannot really have that without understanding that uh, Nazism was largely a Wall Street financed project. And uh, President Kennedy, at the time uh, Hitler was beginning to rise to power, even wrote a book about it. It's called Why England Slept. And uh, there were those here in the United States that felt that uh, capitalism and fascism could peacefully coexist. Well, naturally, you know, enemies are, are financed. Empires don't rise by happenstance. They are financed. They are set up uh, for the purpose of exploitation of the population in the guise of economic development. Uh, and this has been a dynamic which has been ongoing in our country since the establishment of privately owned central banks and since this drive towards internationalism really began to pick up pace shortly after the turn of the 20th century with the establishment of the Federal Reserve. So yeah, I, I do believe that the mindset, to answer your question, of his scientists and the whole Nazi uh, mental framework was already at play here in the United States. Yeah. Um, Okay, now in the book you discuss Operation Ajax, which was uh, an NSC operation in Iran that you say is, is pretty much the source of the angst against America in Iran, or at least it was the start of this angst, you think. So why don't you talk about uh, Operation Ajax, So because a lot of people in America never even heard of it. Yeah, we could talk about Operation Ajax, we could talk about Operation Paperclip, uh, Food Belt. I'd like to talk about them all. Um, Operation Ajax was the code name for the policy of regime change in Iran back in 1953. Iran was under the rulership of a very popularly uh, perceived president in Iran at that particular time. His name was Mohammed Mossadegh. And what happened was uh, the right wing abuse of power under the national security state apparatus uh, created this this seminal event in the Middle East, wherein they did exactly that. They implemented regime change in Iran. The United States and Great Britain uh, jointly worked together in a covert operation called Operation Ajax in 1953. Now, in 1950-51, they tried to get Truman to sign off on this regime change operation. But in approaching an election year, he knew that if the thing backfired, it would be a death knell to the Democratic Party. Eisenhower was elected, and he signed off on it. Truman neglected to do so for political reasons. Truman was a very, very careful politician. I mean, during the period the Operation um, Paperclip period prior to that, when um, the newly created Central Intelligence Agency wanted to bring in Nazi war criminals and put them to work in the defense sector, particularly in the biological and chemical weapons area and the aerospace area. When they wanted to put these guys to work, Truman refused to allow these individuals to be brought into the country if it were found that they, you know, were guilty of war crimes, even before Nuremberg. And so Truman and told him, look, you know, um, 
I, I will only allow those individuals who don't have that stuff in the dossiers to come into the United States. So what happened was the CIA got together and they began sanitizing the dossiers. And then along, then they brought in people like Werner von Braun, made him the head of NASA, and others. Even Klaus Barbie, the butcher of Leon, was brought into the United States. And we used these Nazi assets. They were the spoils of the war. They were the spoils of World War II uh, to leverage our strategic advantage against the Soviet Union because the Nazi intelligence apparatus under Reinhard Galen uh, had amassed a wealth of information on the the Soviets, and uh, we wanted we wanted to have them. They were the prime spoils of the war, and we achieved that goal at that particular time. So we, uh, most Americans don't know that uh, many of the individuals who we were fighting just months prior to them being brought into the United States were now assets of the United States intelligence community. So Truman was very careful in this regard. He did not want to get involved in regime change in Iran. As I said, Eisenhower signed off on it. And the reason why they wanted to get rid of Mossadegh was allegedly because the man was a communist. You see, during after they established uh, the Soviet Union of Socialist Republics in 1917 with the Bolshevik Revolution, uh, it became the antithetical political ideology to capitalism. It became the best enemy that money can buy. Defense contractors grew uh, extremely wealthy, uh, and arguably jobs were created. Houses were bought here in the United States. An economy was built around uh, this antagonism between the United States and the Soviet Union. So uh, 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 what happened was anybody who was a communist or who was labeled a communist during the Great Red Scare period, if you saw the movie Good Night and Good Luck, it talks about uh, uh, Edward R. Murrow in his fight against McCarthy and the branding of individuals in our society arbitrarily as being communists. Yeah. Uh, anybody who was labeled a communist was automatically deemed a national security threat to the United States. And there was this, as I said, this antithetical dynamic that was established by the powers of Wall Street uh, to the United States, and thereby it offered the justification when they labeled Mohammed Mossadegh a communist for U.S. military action in the name of national security. Well, of course, Mossadegh was not a communist. He had no communists in his camp whatsoever. As a matter of fact, one student, Mansour Fahong, who was in Iran at that particular time, ended up telling Bill Moyers that he absolutely had no communists in his camp. So by them labeling him a communist, it justified this covert action against him. His only crime was that he nationalized oil fields that were owned by the Anglo-Iranian oil company. In other words, uh, the British had went in there and uh, they had privatized uh, the oil fields of Iran in 1950, in the early 1950s. And when Mossadegh was elected, he was a nationalist, he was a popularist, 
and uh, naturally following the ideological pursuits of a nationalist leader, he sought a greater share of the profits from his own natural resources, which is these, this vast Iranian oil reserve. Yeah. And uh, when he nationalized those oil fields and took them back from the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company, which would later on become BP, British Petroleum, you know, it drew the indignation of the oil cartels, and they wanted him out. And uh, they simply labeled him a communist. Eisenhower signed off on the covert op. Uh, a proxy coup was implemented by financing dissidents in the streets, similar to what the United States is doing in Iran right now, with a $70 billion, $70 million, I'm sorry, $70 million psychological operation, which is being carried out by the neo-realists in Washington to create enough dissent, enough uh, antagonism, enough support for democratic reform in Iran to overthrow the government of President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. Uh, they did that in 1953 against the government of Mohammed Mossadegh, and the man was overthrown. And uh, as a result, hundreds of, hundreds of thousands of innocent Iranians had their lives overturned, yeah. turned topsy-turvy. Uh, there was murder, death, and intimidation in the streets, and the man was ran out of power. Now, it's not very difficult to draw a line from the overthrow of the Mossadegh government in 1953 and the subversion of democracy uh, at that particular time and not the support of democracy by the United States, which uh, professes today to be a purveyor of democracy, it was that uh, asphyxiation of democracy in Iran at that particular time, you know, which has, uh, was the beginning of the line that we can draw through the Khomeini Revolution, through the taking of the hostages, all the way down through the rise of the Iraq-Iran War, and down to where we are today in this, uh, this very tenuous position in dealing with the Iranian government and the drive towards acquiring nuclear technology. Yeah. Um. You know, a lot of people in America probably have never even heard of uh, what, what went on there back with Operation Ajax, right? No, they're not. The average person is totally unaware of uh, what took place at that particular time. I mean, the overthrow of Mohammed Mossadegh was a very dramatic and pivotal period in U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East. And uh, it's just another example of the subversion of the democratic ideals for which America, you know, purports to stand. I mean, rather than using, um, you know, honesty and statesmanship and diplomacy, too often imperial hubris has been the underscoring factor in U.S. foreign policy. Rather than using a true internationalist approach and sitting down and negotiating and, and diplomatically trying to steer governments into uh, being facilitators with the United States and advancing America's interests abroad, we will invoke the national security imperative and we will pretty much bring these countries our desired policy machinations through military force in the name of national security. And whenever we do this, invariably, we do nothing more than generate more anti-Americanism. Yep. We generate uh, an image of America around the world, which is extremely negative and extremely problematic for future foreign policy uh, objectives. So at some point, 
we're going to have to begin to return to the types, to the type of uh, of statesmanship that we, you know, used to employ around the world. Yeah. We've got to stop being so abrasive uh, in terms of our interjections and our uh, dabbling in other people's affairs because it does have an adverse effect on we, the people of the United States of America, because the the animus of the Iranian people now is actually going beyond uh, a disdain for our elected officials. They hate all Americans. And we see the self-same thing occurring uh, with the elements of Al-Qaeda, the Mujahideen. These are all individuals who we have had very dip uh, deceptive diplomatic uh, engagement with in the past, and now their hatred is towards the American people and not just our elected leaders. So in the name of national security, ironically, we make our security situation far more vulnerable. Yeah, yeah. Um, and one of the problems, like you said, with the national security um, apparatus is that it allows for sort of a loophole of the war powers away from Congress. Um, if you just blanket something in the term of a national security, then they can sort of go subversive and do things that otherwise previously the Congress would have had to, had to intervene with, right? Absolutely. Uh, the National Security Act, in my opinion, should be revisited because I do believe that uh, these national security lawyers have argued and argued successfully um, to expand presidential powers. And this is something that Vice President Cheney said that he very much wants to see happen. He wants to see an expansion of presidential power, particularly in the name of national security. So you're absolutely right. It has been a cloak for various illegal, uh, anti-constitutional, anti-congressional, and anti-populist uh, policies, which have been formulated by various right-wing and a few left-wing White Houses since 1947. In other words, when a president invokes national security, then the Constitution becomes irrelevant, mm -hmm. the will of Congress becomes irrelevant, and the will of the American people become totally irrelevant, the UN becomes irrelevant, the uh, popular perceptions of the United States by our allies becomes irrelevant, previous treaties that America has entered into become irrelevant, and the only relevance at play is a narrow set of policies that are prescribed within the National Security Council and the White House. And, you know, we've seen time and time again the folly in allowing this imperial power to be wielded by these presidents. All right, and in the book you talk about um, two different operations other than Operation Ajax. We talk about a bunch of them anyway, but uh, Operation Success, which was a, was a project down in Guatemala where they interfered there, and uh, Project Fubelt, which was in Chile. Now, those are just like two examples of many instances where this NSA has NSC, CIA, uh, shadowy stuff has gone on, or are those just like the two worst, or what do you think? Well, these are, I just simply chose uh, some glaring examples of where constitutional law has been pretty much disregarded. 
and uh, various administrations, various elected leaders outside of uh, the executive administration in Washington have been compromised. Uh, these are very stark examples, and I feel that these are examples of uh, the violation of the notion of democracy, the violation of the notion of freedom in the name of national security by the United States uh, that have cost us from a regional perspective, more strategic capital than what they were worth. So I, I tried to choose some prime examples. Yeah. Operation in, um, uh, uh, Success in Guatemala, Operation Food Belt in uh, Chile, and Operation um, Ajax in Iran. And I, I try to leave the readers without taking them through the entire history of everything that we've done in the name of national security. Take a volume of books to do that. Yeah. I just try to give a few examples to, 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 to drive home the point mm -hmm. that uh, in the name of national security, what we are witnessing in America is the rise of an imperial presidency. And it's, and it's something that the founding fathers of the United States, although they were morally bankrupt, they were wise enough not to vest that kind of power in any one branch of the government. All three branches of the government are supposed to be co-equal. And let me throw in another one. We the people, along with the press, the fourth estate in America, are also, in my opinion, at the very least co-equal to the three branches of our government, executive, legislative, and judicial. In, in fact, they do work for us. Yeah. Um, and in the book, you spent a lot of time on uh, the Iran-Contra scandal. We, do you think this is an instance where the lid was blown off, the whole uh, the whole secret game going on, and then at that point people kind of saw for the first time what was really going on? Exactly. The Iran-Contra hearings exposed um, in a very compelling way uh, the, the way in which the national security apparatus was totally out of control in the country at that particular time. And uh, when Ronald Reagan, I mean, numerous lies were told uh, during that affair. Uh, everything happened uh, unimaginable at that particular time from drug running in the United States. Uh, which violated the Bolin Amendment as was passed by Congress. Uh, and the lessons of uh, 1986 are lessons that I think for the first time began to sink in. Uh, we missed the lessons of 1953, in my opinion. We, list, we missed the lessons of 1954. John Kennedy surely learned the lessons of 1961 with the Bay of Pigs. Uh, but we missed those lessons, in my opinion. And in 1986, I think, for the first for the first time, people began to understand that, you know, hey, uh, you know, this national security thing is now, you know, it, 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 it's the epicenter of all kinds of dark, illegal, covert operations which have been backdoored out of these White Houses, as I said, including drug running. Yeah. I remember back on October 7th in 1994, Senior White House correspondent Clara Mc Sarah McClendon uh, questioned Bill Clinton about uh, some drug running activities that were being done in the state of Arkansas at that particular time by an organization called the Enterprise, which was set up and run by Oliver North, Albert Hakeem, and Richard Secord during the Reagan years. It was the organization that was set up to pretty much uh, do an in-run around Congress and provide the funding for the Contra War in uh, Nicaragua. 
and uh, she cornered him, and she asked him in public <clears throat> about, you know, these activities that were taking place in a sm at a small airfield in Arkansas in the little town of Mina. And this is an airstrip where uh, normally Cessnas would take off and land. And uh, Clinton became governor, promising to bring economic development to Arkansas. So when they saw these larger aircraft uh, at this base, most people at that time assumed that, well, our governor's making good on his pledge to bring economic development uh, to Arkansas. Little did that, little did they know at that particular time that Mina was being used as a CIA staging ground for a drug running operation. Yeah. So I want to quote to you the question that Sarah McClendon asked President Clinton at that particular time. She said, quote, quote, Sir, the Republicans are trying to blame you for the existence of a small base at Mina, Arkansas. The base was set up by George Bush and Oliver North and the CIA to help the Iran-Contras. And they brought, they brought in plane load after plane load of cocaine there for sale in the United States. And then they took the money and they bought weapons and took them back to the Contras. All of this was illegal under the Bolin Act. But tell me, did they tell you that this had to be in existence because of national security? <laughs> Close quote. So now there, she's, she's pointing out how that this drug running operation was, you know, possibly being conducted in the name of national security. Now, in looking at Clinton in that video, you can see that he was definitely bothered yeah. that this lady would ask him, you know, a question that was so sensitive to national security. Mm -hmm. And Clinton paused for a moment and he, and, he, and he answered her. He said, quote, well, let me answer the question. No, they didn't tell me anything about it. They didn't say anything to me about it. The airport in question and all the events in question were the subject of state and federal inquiries, and it was found primarily a matter for federal jurisdiction. The state really had next to nothing to do with it. The local prosecutor did conduct an investigation based on what was in the jurisdiction of state law. The rest of it was under the jurisdiction of the United States attorneys appointed successively by previous administrations. We had nothing, zero to do with it. And everybody who's ever looked into it knows that. Now, and that's a close quote. Okay. Now, uh, uh, there are some problems with what President Clinton had to say. Well, then Governor Clinton at that time had to say. First of all, he said that the state and local prosecutor did conduct an investigation based upon what was in the jurisdiction of the state law. Well, the local prosecutor was a man by the name of Charles Black, and according to him, he went to then Governor Clinton asking him for money because he knew that rural Polk, Polk Arkansas didn't have the funding necessary in order to be able to uh, go up against the CIA. So he went to Governor Clinton and he asked him for $20,000 to fund the investigation. And Clinton responded to him that he'd get a man on it and that he would report back to him. Well, nobody ever got back with uh, Charles Black and neither did he get the $20,000. So Clinton's statement that the state had next to nothing to do with it was absolutely correct. They had nothing to do with an investigation of the shadowy activities of the Reagan-Bush White House uh, compromising his governorship, compromising his office, and compromising 
the sovereignty of the state of Arkansas by allowing this illegal drug running operation to take place in Arkansas. And I got to tell you, that's why cocaine exploded on the streets in the late 1990s here in the United States, just as heroin exploded on the United States streets uh, during the Vietnam War because the CIA began working with the Hmong tribesmen in South Vietnam, and we would uh, get intelligence for them from them in exchange. You know, we would take their heroin and we would be sold here on the streets of the United States. Yeah. So these are the kinds of activities. These are the kinds of illegal covert activities that are conducted in the name of national security. And they have nothing to do, as a matter of fact, they compromise our security more than they actually shore up or bolster our national security. And that particular example is a glaring example of where the right went wrong on national security and the left at the same time, too. Exactly, exactly. Um, and do you think the Iran-Contra scandal uh, slowed down this national security apparatus, or did they just sort of find a way to do it more secretive? Well, I think that when you look at the National Security Council of George Herbert Walker Bush, you can see that he took a far more uh, collegial approach to it than uh, Ronald Reagan did. Uh, and I think that, yes, it, it, it forced some sobriety temporarily. You can see that uh, when uh, the first President Bush went up against Saddam Hussein in Kuwait, and uh, there were those individuals uh, at that particular time of the neoconservative stripe that was pushing uh, Herbert Walker to Herbert Walker Bush, rather. I don't want to get him mixed up with his grandfather, Herbert Walker Bush. It would push him at that particular time to uh, go ahead and remove Saddam from office. Let's go ahead and take back that. And at that particular time, Secretary of Defense Dick Cheney and President George Herbert Walker Bush uh, chose not to do that because, number one, uh, that was not the mandate from the U.N. Number two, they understood that uh, regime change would cost the American people far more monetarily, so they did not go beyond the immediate mission, which was running Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait. So we could see some sobriety uh, in American uh, foreign policy uh, as a result of the Iran-Contra affair. Uh, gathering so much media attention, uh, gathering so much um, uh, controversy, and I just find it amazing that, you know, uh, more people did not end up uh, in trouble behind that other than uh, than Poindexter and a few others that ended up getting in a lot of trouble at that particular time. If you ask me, uh, when Ronald Reagan lied to the American people saying that, no, we did not sell arms for hostages and knowing full well that we did sell arms for hostages, and he came back a few days later and had to admit that on national television and say, yes, we did sell arms for hostages. He was lying, and the president should have been held to account for that. He also said that Israel was not involved in selling arms to the Iranians, but in fact, Israel was involved with selling arms to the Iranians at that particular time, and that was admitted to by Ed Meese in a press conference uh, only a couple days after Ronald Reagan made that statement. So, you know, the, the administration was practicing the art of prevarication. Uh, in order to facilitate this illegal goal of funding the Contras. As a matter of fact, uh, Ronald Reagan even described himself as being a Contra. You know, he said the Contras are freedom fighters, and he said, you know, I guess that makes me a Contra too. <laughs> um, and now, like, like we're talking about how uh, there might have been a sobriety after Iran-Contra, but it seems like that sobriety is pretty much gone now when this war on terror has begun. 
Um, is that what you do? You agree with that statement that that you know the uh, the whole national security blanket has you know come out of the crawl space, if you will, and uh, is used pretty frequently now in the war on terror. Well, you know, a lot has been written about the events of September 11. I mean, there is a cottage industry on those events right now. A lot of brave Americans have challenged the official uh, uh, forensic analysis that the government has offered up about the, uh, the anatomy and the physiology of those attacks of that day. Yeah. And uh, they've offered opposing theories to the government's theory, and that's all we're going to have is theories based on you know on September 11th, simply because rather than cordoning off the World Trade Center site and allowing scientists to go in there and to forensically examine the steel and to see how that for the first time in my awareness of the history of steel constructed buildings. Buildings could collapse as a result of fire like that. Yeah. So alternative theories have been brought forth to rebut the government's uh, pancake theory. And the president used the attacks of September 11th as a justification for this preemptive and unilateral military action currently underway in Iraq. Um, so a lot has been written about it, and I felt that I need to write about it as well because here again is another example, in my opinion, of where the right has gone wrong on national security. And everybody on the left that voted for this uh, this action in Iraq, they went wrong on national security at that time as well. I think the country was was swept up in a fever of patriotic one-upmanship, and wherein uh, politicians on the left wanted to try to out-patriot the politicians on the right, and it played into the hands of the neocons and the P-knackers, those proponents of the Project for the New American Century, who had prescribed regime change in Iraq even before President Bush was elected president. I think it played well into their hands. Consequently, we went to war in Iraq, and uh, the, 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 the ensuing series of blunders missteps, miscalculations, errors, mistakes uh, that have occurred since that particular time are epic in scale, and I think that they will definitely sullen the reputation and the legacy of this particular president, Secretary of Defense, Defense the Vice President, pretty much uh, the former um, uh, Secretary of State Colin Powell, our current Secretary of State, uh, and uh, Condoleezza Rice, and uh, her actions as National Security Advisor in the first administration of George W. Bush, as well as our current National Security Advisor, Stephen Hammond. I mean, it, 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 their reputations, in my opinion, their legacy is going to be uh, – a very bad legacy as a result of this ill-advised and uh, not very well thought out uh, action that's underway in Iraq right now. It's just another example where the right is not wrong on national security. And you call uh, the, the ramp up to the war in Iraq um, uh, diplomatic exceptionalism. That's exactly right. Um, why don't you talk a little bit about that? Well, you know, anytime you say to a uh, leader of a country whom you 
uh, decide to, you know, is going to be confrontational to the United States, or your your your, your posture towards this individual is confrontational, that you are in violation of various UN uh, resolutions, and you want to enforce those resolutions on that individual, but at the same time. You yourself may be in violations of certain UN resolutions. Other regimes around the world are equally as despotic. And my mind right now is on the government of Khartoum. Yeah. Uh, a very despotic government in violation of all kinds of UN resolutions and nothing is done. Then you take it upon yourself to be the uh, arbitrary police force to arbitrarily apply the rule of international law, to arbitrarily apply uh, uh, enforcement of UN sanctions against these regimes, and you yourself have violated you know, the very uh, spirit of democracy in Iran, the spirit of democracy in Guatemala, the spirit of democracy in Chile, the spirit of democracy in Nicaragua. Then uh, I call that diplomatic exceptionalism. You, you, in other words, uh, you can do X, Y, or Z, but the next man can't do X, Y, or Z. Yeah. And that's fine. I mean, if you want to, you know, take that kind of exceptionalist posture, I just believe that there are more pragmatic ways to achieve your desired result than arbitrary military action. Yeah. So it's like an example of like, do as I say, not as I do. Exactly. Yeah. We're sort of ramping up now, it seems, we're a very tenuous relationship with Iran. Um, where do you see this going uh, as we head forward in 06? The Iranian situation, I mean, you've described it very well, is tenuous. I mean, um, to try to uh, get Iran to steer away from its nuclear ambitions is very, very difficult for the United States. There are so many different catch-22s. There are currently underway two approaches. One has been practically applied, and I've already mentioned that. We've spent $70 million to conduct a psychological operation within Iran to create enough dis dissent within Iran to destabilize the government. Uh, the United States and the neo-realists who are pushing for that particular policy are gambling that uh, the dislike in Iran of their president, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, uh, will be enough with a little bit of help from the United States in propagandizing the population over there to overthrow this guy. Because the Shia community in Iran did not like Ahmadinejad until he came out and he made some of the very abrasive statements towards Israel, claiming that the Holocaust never happened, which was ludicrous, claiming that Israel should be wiped off the map, which is suicidal. Yeah. Uh, and also... Uh, uh, his drive towards uh, acquiring a nuclear weapon as perceived by America. Uh, President Ahmadinejad says that they want nuclear technology for peaceful purposes. America insists that it is something darker. Uh, so we're going to have a hard time in getting them to modify their plans in Iran simply because 70% of the crude oil 
Trumeron goes into China. Yeah. China is a very hungry dragon. As a matter of fact, they're feeding in our backyard right now. Uh, China controls both ends of the Panama Canal. They're conducting a bunch of trade uh, agreements right now in Latin America with countries that are growing vehemently anti-American, primarily because of some of the national security blunders that we made in Latin America in 1973 in Chile and 1954 in Guatemala, and uh, forcing the Washington consensus on many of those countries, which is basically the structural adjustment agreements as offered to these countries by the IMF and the World Bank, having been followed by many of these countries, uh, resulting in a reduction in their per capita income and a reduction in their gross domestic product. In other words, when they listen to what Washington has told them to do, it has resulted in a monumental failure uh, in their economies. Their economies has been asphyxiated as a result of following these protocols, and now these people are reacting to that. So, you know, and China is there filling this gap that America left in its uh, foreign policy relationship with our Latin American neighbors to the south of our border. And they're beginning to fill it quite well. Uh, and also, in doing this, in my opinion, I think that they have pretty much rendered the Monroe Doctrine obsolete and irrelevant. Uh, which is very, very sad. President Kennedy in his inaugural address said that this hemisphere intends to be the master of its own house. And he said that as a message to every communist regime of the Eastern Hemisphere who sought to establish outposts in the Western Hemisphere. The Berlin Wall came down, but you do have a communist country politically albeit it is in a capitalist country economically, and I'm talking about China, you have a communist political ideology establishing relationships which are very compromising to America's interests in our own hemisphere. So, you know, and that relates to our situation in Iran. You know, I don't think that China and Russia and the rest of the nations of the U.N. Security Council will ever give their consent for military action against Iran under the alleged uh, drive within Iran to uh, acquire nuclear weapons. The International Atomic Energy Agency, as headed by um, uh, Al-Baradei, has concluded that Iran is at minimum three years away uh, from the development of the capabilities of enriching weapons-grade uranium. And more realistically, they're about 10 years away from being able to, from being able to produce weapons-grade uranium. Therefore, the sense of urgency which the Bush administration is trying to characterize for the American people in the name of, you guessed it, national security, yep. to deal with this situation in Iran is unjustified in the eyes of the other members of the U.N. Security Council. Basically, only Freemasonic elements in uh, France, England, and the United States, French and uh, uh, Anglo-French, Anglo-European uh, and Anglo-American Freemasonic uh, individuals and, and institutions are the only ones in favor of the ultimate action against Iran, which is military uh, 
force. Now, recently with the president and the secretary of defense have tried to deny uh, any battle plans for preemptive strikes against Iran, but they are contradicting their own 2006 national security policy, as well as contradicting the 2002 nuclear posture review, both of which call for the preemptive use of nuclear weapons. And Iran is one of those principal targets in that uh, in, in, in 21st century battle plans. So I think that the military's option is one that America cannot choose. I think that it would create uh, manifold complications for America. First of all, America needs Iran's help right now in Iraq to help bind up the divisions in the Shiite community in Iraq. But if Iran comes forth and they offer that help, if the Ayatollah al-Sistani ever steps forward, because with a word, he could bind up the Shia community in Iraq, in, Iraq, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, he can get the elements of Muqtada al-Sadr, he can pretty much neuter them, and he can get the, co the country to coalesce behind Ibrahim al-Jafiri. They can allow Muqtada al-Sadr to settle into the background. And the Shia community would, community would be deemed fully engageable by the United States, and I think you would have a greater chance of a central government coalescing in Iraq. Until that happens, you won't see a coalescing of a central government in Iraq. As a matter of fact, I, you know, without the help of Iran and without the help of uh, the neighbors of Iraq, I don't think that uh, a central government uh, materializing in that country is going to happen. And it makes me want to examine a three-state solution with some sort of agreement for profit sharing in its oil. And I think that would uh, give us the uh, imperative then to bring our troops home. But, you know... And going back to the Iranian situation, all this stuff ties together. And I know it seems like I'm jumping around, but all of this stuff does tie together. And going back to Iran, the members of the U.S. Security Council are not going to go along with it. Now, if the Bush administration decides to do what, in my opinion, is the unthinkable and implement military strikes against Iran, Iran could do a number of different things. I think Iran could possibly... Um, instigate chaos in Iraq uh, and further destabilize the country, uh, further uh, decreasing the probability that America would redeploy its forces out of Iraq closer to the Iranian border and stage an invasion of Iran. Second of all, uh, Iran could begin to really ramp up its drive towards acquiring uh, weapons-grade uranium, and they would probably be able to get the help of the Soviet Union in that area, or Russia in that area. Yeah. Uh, also, China uh, wouldn't like it very much. The Iranian situation, as you described, is very, very tenuous. Um, you would do nothing more than uh, create more nationalism in Iran. You would make the $70 million that you spent there on this propaganda campaign pretty much uh, money wasted, just like uh, we wasted $3 billion with the Mujahideen. I wouldn't say it was a total waste. I think Brzezinski's plan to, uh, uh, to exacerbate the Soviet capability uh, through a proxy effort by uh, – 
uh, utilizing the Mujahideen and bringing on the Soviet Union was brilliant, but the byproduct has been extremely harsh. You know, the the, the track that the attack dog that we created and trained ended up biting us on September 11th. Nonetheless, I mean, as Dr. Brzezinski said, which do you prefer? the big rig dog or a few angry Muslims. And, you know, that rationale was fine had we handled the angry Muslims differently. Yeah. You know, and that's 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 the linchpin. That's the key point there. Had we handled the angry Muslims differently, it would have been a brilliant series of foreign policy moves. We would have, you know, vanquished the Soviet Union. Everybody gives Reagan the credit, but I think Brzezinski deserves most of the credit. I don't, I, you know, I don't make any uh, any any apologies for making that assessment either. Yeah. Um, but I, I think, you know, in dealing with Iran, we're, we're in a catch-22. I mean, if you, if you strike them militarily, you know, you're going to have to deal with reprisals from the other industrialized nations, uh, more than likely probably economic reprisals. I think China would probably, you know, move quicker towards diversification out of dollar-denominated assets. Uh, the $2 billion that we're borrowing from China every single day to finance deficit spending in this country would dry up. I mean, hell, in the month of May alone, we spent $85.5 billion. That was a record. The biggest imbalance in U.S. history. Wow. Just in the month of March, I meant to say. So, you know, if that money dries up, we're in heat big trouble. Yeah. You know, we need the money. We need to continue borrowing the $65 billion a day from China because of the imbalances and because of the uh, propensity of this particular Congress and this particular administration to spend beyond the capabilities of uh, America's uh, system of collecting revenue. Uh, so, you know, if they decide to diversify out of dollars as some retaliatory strike along economic lines against the United States, the first area that would be hit in our country would be the government secured enterprises. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, the mortgage industry, would be hit extremely hard. The Federal Reserve would have no choice at that particular point than to, than to acknowledge and fully recognize the housing bubble that Alan Greenspan helped to create in the name of deficit reduction. Uh, ben Bernanke says he doesn't even recognize the housing bubbles. As a matter of fact, he says economic bubbles are not recognizable except in retrospect. They would have to recognize them at that point, I guarantee you. Yeah. Monetary policy would have to be uh, crafted accordingly, and the Federal Reserve would turn on the printing press like we've never seen before. It's not, uh, it's not unrealistic to foresee the Federal Reserve taking interest rates all the way down to zero the way Japan did to deal with this shortfall in foreign capital. Yeah. That's why I included a whole chapter in uh, Thieves in the Temple on the dynamics of stateless capital. Mm -hmm. uh, we need that money. Yeah. We need it. And uh, if it doesn't come in from China, then the taxpayers of the United States are going to have to fork it over. Or we would be hit with the worst tax of all, an invisible tax, inflation by the Federal Reserve activating its printing press to cover the shortfall because Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac would be rendered pretty much uh, virtually insolvent. Um, all right, last question here for you. Um, now, you see, you know, you paint kind of a gloomy picture at the end of Thieves in the Temple, and you're not, you're not uh, shy about using the term new world, uh, new world order. Um, 
and you seem to imply like an impending collapse of the entire system because the whole world seems to be swimming in debt as a result of this uh, worldwide economy, like you said, um, uh, countryless cash or however messed up the phrase there, but stateless capital. Stateless capital. There you go. Um, so do you do you foresee uh, an impending collapse and the emergence of a new world order? And I also want to point out that you make a, a compelling argument for the present economic system being the true mark of the beast in uh, Thieves in the Temple. Well, that's worth noting uh, and checking out when you pick up the book, folks. Uh, that's a great part of the book. But do you see uh, that this may be the final stage toward a worldwide economic uh, new world order? And we'll see it. We're already in that. I mean, we have that already. You see, the mistake that Christianity makes, this mistake, in my opinion, that modern theological science has made, is that when they read the 13th chapter of Revelations that talks about the mark of the beast, they only think of something physical. Yeah. The mark of the beast is not 666 tattooed in your hair. It's not a biochip under your skin. It's not a barcode on your credit card or some barcode stamped on your skin somewhere. That's not what it is, albeit it may be a manifestation of the mark of the beast. But the mark of the beast in its true ontological and ultimate sense is nothing physical. It is a spiritual and psychological mark. When you look up the word mark in a dictionary, it means to characterize. A lot of sports writers have said that Barry Bonds is an a-hole. Pardon my expression. <laughs> but you know they say he's an a-hole. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, his character has been marked. You know, if a person is, uh, if a contract is taken out on a person, they say, okay, well, he's a marked man. Yeah. If you look up the word mark in the dictionary, it means to characterize, as the 19th century was characterized by the Industrial Revolution. Mm -hmm. If your consciousness is totally consumed by the relentless pursuit of gain, the way the plutocrats who established the Federal Reserve 93 years ago, yeah. This coming December 24th. If your consciousness is totally consumed by the relentless pursuit of gain without regard for righteousness in any way, then you have the mark of the beast. Because that mark says that you can't buy or sell except you receive the mark. Now, granted, in just trying to survive under this current economic system, you cannot operate outside of the system. There have been organizations which have brought forth alternative currencies. And they work in small and very closed systems. There have been alternative ideas that have been brought forth by very brave patriots, people like Ron Paul mm -hmm. and others who I admire, who I laud, who I uphold high, uh, who inspire me. But these ideas are not allowed to uh, take on shape and form within the consciousness of the public because the media is bought off. And they won't allow these ideas to be bought for. So consequently, I think that we are living in the system that John described. But the mark of the beast is nothing physical. Yeah. It's talking about a psychological and a spiritual state of mind. You know, if your consciousness, as I said, is marked by avarice, unbridled greed, uh, by a plutocratic agenda, then you've received the mark of the beast. And yes, we are in that system.
I don't believe that that system can survive because it's built on principles that violate immutable, universal, spiritual principles. Mm -hmm. And a beautiful analogy is the so-called laws of nature, Newton's laws of physics. Yeah. I think that they are an allegory to spiritual laws or the law of spirit that the Bible talks about. For instance, Newton's law of gravity says that if you jump off the Capitol Rotunda on your head, you will die. If you violate the laws of, of gravity, there's a price to be paid. It's immutable. It's unchangeable. It has no respect to persons. In the same way, universal spirit law, that law which guides the ducks, thank God, to the south every winter because I love taking a few of them and roasting some duck breast on the grill. I love it. Uh, the immutable spirit law that uh, controls and coordinates uh, all things, both animate and inanimate, both material and incorporeal, that immutable spirit law, when violated, is no respect of persons. And, uh, you know, the ramifications for violating that spirit law will be uh, just as assuredly carried out upon you as when you violate the, uh, the laws of physics and the laws of nature. In other words, you know, we've gone away from these spiritual laws which, were, which have been prescribed for us. Uh, uh, and these laws basically tell us that we have to be honest. We have to be um, mindful of the harm that we can inadvertently bring to others, particularly, you know, when we're talking about national security, you know, the mere shifting of our weight can sometimes cause entire governments to come unhinged. And if we're not mindful of that, if we have no regard for that, then we're violating spiritual laws. You know, we're supposed to be our brother's keeper. All, everything that the Bible tells us is real. Yeah. And when we violate those things, there's a price to be paid. So, you know, no. The current economic system, which is built on greed, which is built on avarice, which is built on usury, which is built, which is built on dishonesty and weights and measures, it cannot exist into perpetuity. It has to come down. It's going to collapse under the weight of its own, uh, 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 what word am I looking for? Under the weight of its own pernicious ways. Yeah. Uh, uh, under the weight of its own um, gravity, gravity, it's, it's going to come down, man. Yeah. Exactly. We are living in a global economy, whether we like it or not. And I think, you know, in pretty much in conclusion to all of this, to national security, and please, people, please understand, you know, this national security issue I know is above and beyond the thoughts of most Americans, even a lot of people in the Patriot community. We haven't connected the dots yet. Yeah. It's just as important as all of the activism against the IRS, as all of the activism against the Federal Reserve. It's just as important. And it, just like the Fed and the rest of these institutions of monetary science, it has become an untamable, malign, self-cannibalizing dynamic in our society. It's just as important, and it deserves just as much as our, of, of our attention. Yeah. Um, please understand that uh, unless we begin to correct ourselves, unless we return to 
some sense of real morality. Unless we begin to uh, understand that everything that's done in the name of national security is not designed to facilitate our national security. It's designed, some of this stuff is designed to facilitate pure, unadulterated greed, and thereby it is pretty much, uh, you know, following the mark of the beast. Unless we understand that, then we're going to be on the wrong side of universal spirit law. Exactly. And universal spirit law is no respect of persons. I believe uh, the book of Romans, the first chapter, says that they which do such things, and also those who give their consent, you know, everybody's going to suffer the wrath. Yep. So, you know, regardless of what religion you serve, regardless of what God you serve, I mean, these laws, as I said, they are universal. Mm -hmm. Every religion talks about these laws. They are immutable. In other words, they're unchangeable. Yep. And you, me, and everybody else are subject to them. So let us... You know, to borrow vernacular from the hood, keep it real. <laughs> keep it real and um, <clears throat> and try to get back on the path of righteousness. Exactly, exactly. You get, you just, you, man, I can listen to you all day. Thank you. <laughs> you just uh, hit on exactly what I'm trying to say. You know? Tim, let me say this. I really appreciate the kind words that you have had to say about me. Um, we need more people like you in this country. America is a great country. I believe that we are still, in spite of all of our faults, we're the greatest country on the face of the earth. And I'm talking about the people. I'm talking about the majority of this of this of this of this country. Listen to me, trying to call it a corporation and a company, which is what it really is. <laughs> but this country, we're the, you know, the people here are peaceful, they're loving people, and I'm talking and I'm talking about everybody: white, black. You name it. We're peaceful people. There's something special about America. And there have been those who have told me in times past, very prominent individuals. I remember I was interviewed by Alan Combs on my book, Thieves and Simple. He told me, you know nothing is going to happen to this. And I told him, Mr. Combs, I don't know that. As a matter of fact, history shows me just the opposite. That whenever the American people have been riled up enough, they demand change. Unfortunately, in times past, we just weren't knowledgeable enough to demand the right kind of change. That's why I'm trying to enlighten, wake up the American people and, and, and show them what to ask for so that we can get the right kind of change the next time around. And, 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 and Tim, i got to tell you, the work that you're doing, you're in my prayers, you're in my thoughts. I hope that you keep it up. I will. Don't worry about that. I'm going to definitely keep it up because whether people know it or not, little simple people like us, I believe we're the salvation of the soul of this country figuratively. Exactly. You know, so we have to keep it up. Um, and what can we expect from you? Obviously, folks can hear you Monday to Friday, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Eastern Time, live on the Internet, on the Information Radio Network, www.inforadionet.com. Uh, what else do you have coming up in the pipeline? Also, they can go to my webpage, which is talktoandre.com, and they can order a copy of this this new book of mine, Where the Right Went Wrong on National Security and the Left, too. Exactly. Yep. Both of them. We've been sold out. Time for us to get off the government's plantation. Yeah. You know, we've been sold out by both sides. Uh, they can pick up a copy of that book if they go to my website, or they can pick up the phone. If you don't have the Internet, just pick up the phone and dial 877-962-6657. 
877-962-6657. That's my publisher in Los Angeles. And pick up a copy of this book. It is really starting to take off. Thieves in the Temple has gone on to garner a cult following in America. Um, and how, how can I get Thieves in the Temple on? Same way? Same way. Or you can go to Amazon for both of these books. Barnes and Noble. Go to your local bookstore. If they don't have it, tell them to order it. Exactly. Because it's in the system. They can order it. You know, start a buzz about this stuff. Look. I'm an African-American. I'm a black man. I'm the only African-American in the history of this country to ever write a major work critiquing the Federal Reserve System and critiquing the national security state apparatus. I'm not a cultural separatist. I'm not a victimologist. I'm a voice of reason and a voice of sobriety. I try to, you know, consciously hold high the mantle that people like Dr. Martin Luther King and others have passed on to us, which is to put our trivial differences aside and cause America, make America rise up and live out the true meaning of his creed and make America be the best country on the face of the earth, which we do have the potential to be, and not allow our own laziness, our own slowfulness, our own indifferences, our own prejudices, our own preconceived notions, our own biases, our own misconstrued mental framework, which is developed within our consciousness, you know, by being taught all kinds of erroneous garbage from our families, from our preachers, from our teachers, from the media, from our politicians, and to reach deep within ourselves and to find that universal spirit being which dwells within us and let it lead and guide us in truth and in righteousness. And I think that we can save our country for our children and for our grandchildren and not allow ourselves to sell out what we know is right in the name of some political party affinity? Exactly. Come on, man. I could care less whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. If you're telling the truth, I'm on your side. I'm a registered Democrat. Ron Paul is a Republican, but you know something? I'd probably be willing to take a bullet for him. Wow. You know, yeah. uh, 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 I, I won't hesitate to upbraid any Democrat or any Republican or anybody else exactly. yeah. who is going to sell my country out and expect me to just be a hack for them, expect me to be a, expect me to be a show for them on the radio, forget about it. Exactly. Um, well, thank you very much, Andre, for being on the show. Uh, the books are Thieves in the Temple, America Under the Federal Reserve System, and Where the Right Went Wrong on National Security. Uh, you heard about how you can get them, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, through the website. Uh, the website he's got is TalkToAndre.com, and the radio show is www.inforadionet.com. Andre, Eglishan, uh, uh the interview worked out really well for me because uh, I read Where the Right Went Wrong last week, and then we set it up for this Friday, so I read Thieves in the Temple uh, this past week for the second time. It is an amazing book, um, and you really... You hit it right on the head with uh, Connect the Dots. You got a great view of the big picture, and you really spell it out for the reader. And that's what I enjoy about the books. And that's why I recommend them, because it spells out the big picture for the people who are getting into this. We're trying to understand it. It really spells it out for you. It hits it home for you. It's just an amazing book. Both of them are. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you so very much. God bless you. Um, and let's just keep 
Keep going. The struggle will continue. We must never, ever give up. Never. I don't care how bad it looks. You know, I don't care how far along this new world order advances. Yep. We must never, ever give up. Not as long as there's breath in our bodies. And one more point I wanted to make is that you really understand the, uh, the dynamics of it. It's not black versus white. It's not Democrat versus Republican. It's not capitalist versus communist. It's rich versus poor. All of those things are smoke screens. None of those things are assets to the working class. Every one of them are liabilities to the working class. Yeah. I would be a fool to arbitrarily hate or discriminate against anyone no matter what has happened in our past, because from here on in, unless we perceive and understand that we're in a class-based struggle today, then we're all going down. Exactly. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you. I appreciate it, Tim. That does it for this week's edition of Been All of America Audio. Huge thanks to Andre Eglishan for sitting down and talking to us. Uh, we'd actually were taping the interview right before he ate dinner, and he really he actually went longer than we'd expected to go. And uh, later in the evening than we had planned, so the guy actually was, uh, you know, put off having his dinner so we could appear on the Banal of America audio show. And, I mean, I appreciate that huge, and I'm sure now that you know that, you're going to appreciate it huge. I mean, that's really cool of him to do. You can find out more information about him at www.talktoandre.com. That's T-A-L-K-T-O-A-N-D-R-E.com. You can find out more information about his radio show at www.inforadionet.com. The books are Where the Right Went Wrong on National Security and the Left Two, and the hugely popular Thieves in the Temple, America Under the Federal Reserve System. Check out those books. you got to read these books. They're amazing. I loved them. Also, huge thanks to Leslie and Chiron and R. Lee of BenAllOfAmerica.com for your help and support with the audio series and the website at large. Leslie pens the column on Tuesday, Gray Matters. Chiron pens the Wednesday column, The K-Files. R. Lee stops by BenAllOfAmerica.com twice a month with her column, Trickster's Realm. Check out those columns at BenAllOfAmerica.com. If you have just discovered the Benall of America audio series, check out the archive. We've got 25 other episodes other than this one here. This is literally our 26th edition of Benall of America audio, season 1. Check out the deep archive of Benall of America audio offerings. We've got just tons of huge names. I could list them, but it would take all day. So check out the Benall of America audio archive. That's at BenallofAmerica.com. Click the audio button. Click the audio archive link. You'll find it. And if you're a longtime listener to Benall of America audio, you just heard me say we've got 25 episodes already in the can. We're probably going to finish up at about 33 episodes. If you want to help us out, click the PayPal button, make a donation. Every little bit counts, every little bit helps. If you got some change, throw it in the bucket, we'd appreciate it. Next week on Banal of America Audio, it's part one of two with Richard Dolan. Richard Dolan is the author of the amazing book, UFOs and the National Security State. Uh, this is a must-have book for anyone in the ufology world, anyone studying ufology. It's a veritable history of ufology. Uh, I read it this past spring. Finally, had the chance to sit down and read it. Uh, I've heard so much. I've heard. I've been hearing about this book for years, and finally had a chance to sit down and read it. And it lived up to the billing. It lived up to the hype. It was an amazing book. UFOs in the National Security State. We're going to be discussing that next week on April 29th, 2006. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, have a great week. 
This is Tim Badal, signing off.